Hello and welcome to another episode of Well Capitalized. I'm your host, Bobby Kingsbury, Managing Director at MCM Capital Partners. Today with, we have with me again Brent Petrofees from Kelphy Halter & Griswold. We'll be discussing the most common, commonly negotiated terms in M&A process, and Brent will walk us through uh, some timelines as well. So Brent, thanks for joining us uh, again today. I guess you know, we've, you've been with us before, but might as well provide a little bit more of your, your background again for maybe uh, sure. first-time viewers. Happy to, happy to. So, I've been at Calfi for 17 years. I'm currently uh, the co-chair of our M&A practice as well as our family office practice. I spend probably two-thirds of my time in the, uh, doing M&A, uh, mostly in the private equity world. And the other third is general corporate transactions, contracts, capital raising, succession planning, and the like. Thank you. I appreciate it. So just to, to kind of get into it from a high-level standpoint, can you talk to us generally about the the M&A process from a legal standpoint, how, how long it takes? So it usually depends on when, the, when legal gets involved. Um, there's a lot of different factors that impact you know, when we come to the table. But generally speaking, you have two separate timelines, you know, depending on whether or not you've got a, an investment banker involved. You know, while an investment banker can bring you know, additional people to the party um, and they can help organize a transaction, when they're involved, it typically does extend the timeline a little bit because you've got um, a couple of additional steps. So when an investment bankers involved, they will typically come in, help you build out a book um, of in confidential information memorandum about the business. They will then solicit indications of interest from, from different parties to see you know, where people may come in on valuation. So there's a process there that takes time to, to look at those and sort through those. Then they will take a subset of those to uh, propose a letter of intent. Um, all the while, behind the scenes, they're helping the, to build out a data site and help with the diligence process. Once you get to the letter of, letter of intent stage, they will then uh, pick, you know, which is typically their best offer, and then the, that process would start. So then, you know, you negotiate uh, with one party, purchase agreement, other ancillary documentation, and you get to uh, a closing, you know, following that. That whole process is probably six months. I would say, um, best case scenario. I've seen them go longer, I've seen some shorter, but you know, usually that's a, that's a rough estimate there. Yeah, I, I think that's a little bit longer than most business owners think the process will take mm -hmm. you know, when hiring an investment bank. It, it you know, takes a, a little bit of time to get all the information, to write the book, and then bring the parties to, to the table. And there are some pros in that you know, they will force you on the front end to go through the diligence process, build a data site, so you're not trying to do that um, while negotiating a purchase agreement and things like that. And so it's helpful from that perspective. It's also costly, as you know, um, to hire an investment banker. So the flip side of that is if there's not a banker involved, you usually cut out a lot of that first step um, and you really move primarily to a letter of intent stage, negotiate a letter of intent, make sure you understand the primary business terms. Then you'll start the diligence process Again, there wasn't a, probably a lot of work typically done on the front end, so that it may take a little bit of while, a, a little bit of time to get that up and running. Once that's up and running, and the buyer has access to a data room, they'll be able to work through that process, negotiate sort of dual track negotiating the purchase agreement, and then you get to a closing. I'd say that process, anywhere from, you know, three months. I've seen you know that happen as quick as three months, or as or as long as three months, as quick as a month. Yeah, depending on you know the situation. Interesting. Uh, so, I, I think you know, talking about the, the the letter of intent stage, and one of the first things probably negotiated aside from 
purchase price or in conjunction with purchase prices, whether the deal is going to be an asset deal or a stock deal. And a as a business owner, can you tell me why, <coughs> why I would care? What's, what's the difference? So from a legal standpoint, the primary difference is in an asset transaction, you can cherry pick the assets you're going to buy and the liabilities you're going to assume. So I can go into a situation as a buyer and say, I want these particular assets from the seller. I only want to assume certain you know, operating liabilities or certain contractual liabilities that are known, that I understand, and I can value um, or evaluate the risk of. And then you move forward on that basis. And then anything that's left over remains with the seller entity. So it's, there's a, typically a seller, the shell entity that's left will retain those assets and those liabilities. The benefit for the buyer is you understand what you're getting. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of unknowns. Um, it also streamlines the diligence process somewhat from the buyer's perspective because if you're not worried about taking out a bunch of historical liabilities. unknown liabilities, yeah. you're not doing as much diligence typically. Um, from, you know, on, on the stock side, the main difference is you're taking the entire organization. So you're taking all the liabilities, all the historical liabilities, you're taking all of the assets, whether they're you know, part of the business or not, or part of the business that you want to buy or not. So it's really, you're taking on the entire enterprise. So um, that's the primary legal difference. Um, from a tax perspective, and I am not a tax lawyer, but... <laughs> Um, we'll have somebody cover yeah. that, but from a high-level standpoint. High-level standpoint, <laughs> you know, when you're buying assets, you get a step up in basis in those assets. So you can immediately start depreciating or amortizing those assets post-closing, whereas if you're buying stock, you know, that only, the only ability to do that is your basis is what you paid for, and you only get the benefit of that when you go to exit the enterprise, you know, at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a huge benefit to a buyer there. Um, but there is, a, uh, from that standpoint, on the... Uh, on the tax basis, there is kind of a, a step in between, um, you know, for certain uh, legal entities, uh, specifically an S corporation called the 338H10 mm -hmm. election. Can you, you know, kind of just high level touch base on the 338H10? So effectively, you know, it's a, you get the best of both worlds type situation. So if you are a, and, and there's a lot of rules that go into this, so you have to make sure you consult with your tax advisor um, and your lawyer about whether or not it's applicable to your situation. But that's such a good lawyer. <laughs> generally, <laughs> generally speaking, um, you know, if you are a corporation, you can buy another corporation and for tax purposes only, uh, that acquisition will be treated as an, an acquisition of the assets of the underlying company, of the target company. So you get the, the same step up in basis you would get if you were buying assets, but from a legal standpoint, you are buying the entity. Where that's helpful is in a situation where you can't buy assets because there's some reason, um, there's a lot of contracts that you know, can't be assigned or there's some permits that can't be assigned and you need to buy stock so that you don't have to go through that process, but you still want the benefit of the step up in basis. So that's one way to do that. Now, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of rules around that, so you need to make sure you understand those. I, I appreciate that. You know, uh, one of the purposes of doing these, th these videos is to educate uh, business owners and address their, their concerns and their, mm -hmm. and their fears. And uh, a common uh, fear, especially in a leverage recapitalization, where a business owner retains a meaningful portion of the business moving forward, but generally they are giving up control. Mm -hmm. you know, so you know, from a business owner, if, if I was a business owner going into that situation, what, what protection do I have as a minor, 
as a minority shareholder. So you've got certain statutory protections that are afforded to minority shareholders. So you know the majority can't steamroll minority shareholders and do things that are completely to the disadvantage of the minority. Um, you typically don't want to rely on those. Okay. Um, so what typically happens is you negotiate you know, an equity holders agreement, depending on the type of entity. If you're a, a corporation, it would be a stockholders agreement. If you're an LLC, it's an uh, operating agreement. It's a partnership, it's a partnership agreement that lays out you know, the rights of the minority shareholders and the, and the rights of the majority shareholders um, in a contractual form that can be negotiated. And as a minority owner, there's certain things you really want to focus on um, in that document, things like um, super majority uh, provisions that allow you to have a say when the company is taking certain high-level, major um, strategic decisions. So things like selling the business, or taking on excessive additional debt, or um, moving into a new line of business. There's certain you know, protections that you want to make sure that you have a vote in when um, those actions are being taken. So those, that's one way to protect and have a, a say as a minority owner. A couple other provisions is, you know, there's a thing called a preemptive right. So if the company's going to go out and raise capital, you want to make sure that you have the ability to participate in that capital raise so you can maintain your relative ownership percentage mm -hmm. um, so you don't get diluted um, without having the ability to, to participate. Now, if you don't participate, you know, you would your get, choice. it's your choice right. and you'd be diluted, but you want to make sure you have at least the ability to, to say yes or no based on you know, whatever the facts are at the, cap at the time. The other is um, a drag-along right um, and the commensurate um, tag-along right. So the majority is going to want to be able to drag you along and make you sell your equity if they want to sell theirs in, in certain situations. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is if the majority exits the business, you want to be able to participate in that exit. So you have a what's called a tag-along right that says, uh, you know, if you majority are going to go sell your majority stake, I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to be part of that deal on the same basis and sell my stock on the same basis in which you're selling yours. So in, in that scenario with the drag-along rights, is there any situation where I, as a minority shareholder, you know, if I disagree with the majority shareholder and say, you know what, I think it's wrong that we're selling the business right now, it's an inopportune time, I don't think we're maximizing shareholder value, I don't know when that situation might happen, but it might occur. Mm -hmm. what, is there any protection for a, a minority shareholder there in, in that standpoint, or no? If you've negotiated it and as part of the, the um Supermajority provisions, that would be one area where you'd have protection, but typically speaking, on a drag-along situation, you're waiving, you're right. f f in advance, you're waiving your right to, to say that. Um, and that's the whole point, that's why the, the majority wants it, they, they can, you know, when they think it's time to sell, they can sell and you're along for the right. Now you, you get treated the same way, so there's no, you know, there's a disincentive to the majority to do things that are bad for, for the, the shareholders shareholder. because exactly. they would be bad for them too. So um, you have some protection there that you're being treated the same way as the majority, mm -hmm. but you really are waiving your right to, to raise your hand and say, no, I don't want to do this. Okay, I appreciate the, the clarification. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, in your experience, in your 17 years of experience, what, what have been the most common or heated uh, terms uh, in, in certain negotiations? In the, in the acquisition docs? Yes. Um, it's usually around um, the reps and warranties, although that has gotten a little bit easier with the advent of rep and warranty insurance, which we won't go into that here. That's a whole other video. You can do a whole other video on rep and warranty <laughs> insurance. But 
for people who aren't aware, when you're selling your business, you're going to make representations about the business. You're going to say all different kinds of things around how the business has been operated historically, if it's been in compliance with laws, that all of your material contracts are in full force, um, that you have the ability to sell stock or assets, a litany of things. Mm -hmm. And so what goes into those reps is, is usually heavily negotiated to make sure that you know, the seller can make the representations and that the buyer is getting the representations that it needs and wants to, to mitigate risk. Yeah, because we're relying on that business owner's representations. Right. Now, you because, you know, you, it, they go hand in hand with diligence. You're going to do your diligence, right. but at the same time, you want somebody, the seller or the sellers, to go on record as saying, you know, these things have happened or not happened um, in my business. And if, if I'm wrong about those things, that I will indemnify you uh, to the extent that you suffer a loss as a result of those things being false. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I don't want to get off topic here because there's a, a few more <coughs> there, but uh, the buyer would get indemnified. How does the buyer get indemnified? As a business owner, am I just cutting a check? Or how does that happen? So there's a couple different ways. Uh, usually there will be some kind of a holdback mm -hmm. um, at closing. So there'll be an escrow, uh, some amount of the purchase price will put in a third-party escrow account, um, or it'll be just held back by the buyer uh, with a contractual obligation to pay it at some point in the future. And in those instances, that's typically the first source of recovery when there's an indemnity claim. So if you breach, as a seller, if you breach the contract, you said something that wasn't true in a representation or warranty, or you breach some other provision of the contract, that is the first pot of money that the buyer would be able to go after. Um, beyond that, depending on the severity of the breach, the seller could be coming out of pocket and writing a check. There's usually limitations that are put into the purchase agreement to protect uh, the seller from having you know, huge losses. Um, but that being said, to the extent that the loss is related to something that's fundamental to the business, and, you know, whether you owned it, um, <clears throat> you had the ability to sell it, there was no liens on your assets, those types of things, you know, typically you're at risk for the entire purchase price, if not more. And get, getting back to the uh, common negotiated terms, what, uh, what about things like restrictive co covenants or indemnif uh, indemnification? Mm -hmm. So those, you know, as we talked about, so obviously indemnification is a big one, yeah. There's a, because sellers want to know what they're potentially on the hook for down right. the road and, and make sure that they understand the risk. So the limitations around the indemnity are, are usually hotly negotiated. Um, usually there's a, uh, a basket or an indemnity threshold uh, that says, we can't come after you for small stuff. We can only come after you once it reaches a certain level of materiality, a dollar, usually a dollar amount. What typically is that dollar amount on a called a $25 million transaction? It, depending on the type of basket or, you know, uh, indemnity basket, um, if it's a dollar one or if it's a threshold, yeah. uh, it's anywhere between half a percent and a percent typically um, of the purchase price. Mm -hmm. And then there's a cap, so a maximum amount that you could be out of pocket that applies to just sort of the general reps and warranties, and that's depending on the deal and the size deal and, and the parties, you know, those can range from, call it 5% to 25%, you know, given in that size deal. Got it. And then, you know, to your other point, the restrictive covenants are another area because, again, that's sort of a, a seller's go-forward uh, obligations and they want to understand what they can and cannot do going forward. And obviously a buyer doesn't want to finance a seller to, to go right back into business and compete against them. So those are 
pretty um, heavily negotiated as to you know, what boxes are put around the seller going forward from a non-compete, a non-solicit, and a confidentiality perspective. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a, a very good transition into, I think, especially in leverage recapitalization, uh, <coughs> another heavily negotiated uh, item is an employment agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, wh what are some of the most common uh, terms uh, heavily negotiated in an employment agreement? So, you know, the things that would be in any employment agreement, right? So salary, benefits are two big ones, understanding what that looks like. And, you know, a lot of times a seller has been the primary owner and has just been taking distributions right. from the business, you know, when they needed them. Or, has never know. had an employment agreement, probably. Right. Right. So, you know, an important thing for a seller to consider is what is their value to the business? If they had to go out and hire somebody to do their job, mm -hmm. In the, in the open market, what would you have to pay that person? And you know, that's probably what a buyer is going, or the range of what a buyer is going to want to pay you with from a salary perspective. Yeah, and we see that a lot in our negotiations mm -hmm. and employment agreement is, you know, business owner, entrepreneur, making significant uh, money, dropping a lot to, to the bottom line, and they're taking salaries, you know, on a, call it 20 to $25 million business, uh, anywhere from 500000 to $800,000. and Generally, for, for us, you know, just to, to your point, we're looking at what is market for that size business. Mm -hmm. We have to normalize salary. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, that is an additional add back to EBITDA, which business owners you know, typically uh, might not think about. Mm -hmm. you know, that $400,000, $500,000 delta in salary, you're getting paid a multiple on that. Right. So you can either take it up front in a purchase price, or it, it can be taken away from uh, from EBITDA. So yeah, and, and that's you know because that's not something intuitively that a lot of sellers think about is a, is an area where there's a lot of negotiation to your point, and there's you know not always a meeting of the minds at the front end. So that's an important area to to flesh out, you know, in the letter of intent, indication of interest stage, so you you don't have those tough discussions once you've set a purchase price. Right, and then I I think probably some other things that uh, maybe you can touch on are an incentive comp plan, mm -hmm. uh, usually, you know, generally business owners didn't have that prior, especially for themselves. Right, you know, and that's a lot of, you know, especially a private equity buyer wants to make sure that the management team and the seller are aligned with their interests. So they will put in place uh, an incentive comp plan that will reward them, um, whether it's with actual equity, phantom equity, or, or some hybrid. Um, for the you know appreciation of the business over time, so that again interests are aligned and they want to you know drive you know, value of the business because they're going to participate as an owner. Mm -hmm. What in an employment agreement too? What, what about the you know as a as a buyer? I think about some some of the other things like uh, it, especially a non compete. You know if if a business owner you know we're going to partner with them moving forward, and if they decide to leave and start something else, it severely hinders the business that we just right. we just bought. And then severance would probably be another thing. Can you touch on those two? Sure. Um, the non-compete in the employment agreement is important, um, and you need to sort of relate it to the non-compete that you're going to get as part of the acquisition document. The non-compete in the acquisition document is, is a fixed period of time that starts at closing. Mm -hmm. um, typically, it's five years, and it's based on the way that the business was operated at closing. So if the seller walks day two, they're still bound by that five-year non-compete, but it's limited to what the business was when it sold in most instances. It's important to have a non-compete in the employment agreement 
because a lot of times you're going to partner with this person for a longer period of time and they may outlive that five year, that five year window mm -hmm. and you want to make sure that you have a tail or the buyer wants to make sure that they have a tail non-compete that extends beyond the employment period for all the reasons you just articulated. You don't want somebody you know, who's in a uh, material position mm -hmm. to go out and compete with you. So you want to have some non-compete at the end and again that at that point is based on what the business was at that time which it may have certainly and, and hopefully did evolve over that five-year span to something different than what it was when you bought it when the buyer bought it so you want to make sure that the non-compete is covering you know the most recent iteration of the business so that's an important piece to think through um, and then the severance is, is somewhat tied to the non-compete because typically sellers want to be paid a severance mm -hmm. And in a lot of instances, it's not surprisingly the same duration as the non-compete. Right. So if you're getting a one-year non-compete, they want a you know one-year severance that's paid out over that year. Um, and, and in a lot of times, it, it makes sense for the buyer to to, to do that because you're paying to keep that guy out of the business um, for that period of time. Um, and those you know those numbers can be negotiated, right? So it's yeah. if you're going to get a six-year six-month severance and a one-year non-compete or, or something like that. So for. For the final question, I'm going to put you on the spot here for, for a minute. Is there any, um, for, for a business owner listening, is there any tips or, I don't want to say tricks, but things for them to think about when, on a negotiation standpoint going into an M&A transaction? Things to, to watch out for to you know, either cover themselves, things that, that they should know uh, going in that maybe we haven't covered today? Um, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of the big picture questions. I, you know, I think this is a good opportunity as any to say, uh, you know, you don't want to try to do this on your own. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure you've got a good team around you who's been through this process before. Um, good lawyer, good accountant, good, um, uh, if you're going to use an investment banker, a good investment banker. Because there's a lot of things that you aren't going to think about, and obviously we couldn't cover everything in this video. Yeah that they will have dealt with and do deal with on, a, on an everyday basis and are equipped to handle and think about and be strategic around um, to make sure that you're getting the best deal possible, not only from a financial standpoint, but from a risk allocation standpoint. Um, because it's so easy in a lot of instances to be blinded on the front end by the dollars. Right? I'm getting, how much am I getting at closing? How much am I putting in escrow? What's my comp look like? What's my equity look like? And those are all important, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of things that people don't think about from a risk allocation standpoint, which is what you know, a lot of the documentation is designed to do, is to allocate risk right. on a go-forward basis between a buyer and seller that sellers don't necessarily appreciate because they've never lived through it to know what the potential downsides are. That's where having a good lawyer who's been through those situations can you know, use a little bit of foresight and say, hey, you know, I've seen this happen where you know, if you agree to this particular provision, you're going to be potentially putting yourself at a lot of risk down the road where somebody's either going to claw back that escrow or claw back some of that purchase price or claw back some of your equity, and we want to avoid that. So um, I think that's the best thing a, a potential seller can do is, is hire a good team. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, Brent. That's very, very helpful. And I'm sure, you know, as we continue these episodes, business owners are going to have uh, certainly more questions as it relates to the legal side. Sure. We'd love to, to have you back at some point. Happy to do it. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Brent. All right. Thank you for taking the time to watch another episode of Well Capitalized. Please subscribe to our channel below. And if you have any additional questions, please leave them in the comments section. Thank you.